Last week, we started this homiletical mini-series, walking with our lectionary through uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy. You might recall that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison at the end of his ministry and the end of his life. And in that context, he's offering Timothy some final instructions on how to continue the work that Paul started in the churches in Ephesus, where Timothy uh, is serving as an overseer, what we might call a bishop. We saw that Paul is, is calling Timothy and all Christians to receive the good news about Jesus Christ, to nurture and develop it, and then to pass it along to others. In the first chapter of uh, 2 Timothy, which we focused on last Sunday, uh, we might see this as Paul's focus on the receive part of this cycle, uh, call this uh, a focus on the, the modes of reception. Timothy received the good news about Jesus Christ from his mother and his grandmother, from his family, and he also then received the commissioning um, from Paul by the laying on of hands to lead the church in receiving, nurturing, and passing along this good news. Today, in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, we get a little more insight into this middle step in the process, the the nurture and development component. Or just say we get a little more insight, perhaps, into uh, what, what it takes to do this well, that is, the effort and, indeed, the suffering required to receive and nurture the good news about Jesus Christ. However, as we intimated last week, uh, this effort was not some some purely human effort to muster up one's own will. Rather, it's a grace-empowered effort that enables us to do the good work that God calls us to do. So let's jump into verses 3 to 6 to see how Paul illustrates this perspective that we ought to have if we are to receive and nurture the good news well. Paul writes this. Paul says, "...share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus." No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, as I understand it, these are all illustrations attempting to convey some reality. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer are all images, all illustrations that that point to the posture that Paul wants Timothy and other followers of Christ to have. You writers and teachers know this kind of a strategy, right, for communication. You're trying to find a way to illustrate a point, uh, try to connect with your audience or your class. But not everyone in the audience uh, has the same background experiences for you to connect with. And so you you try a few different ways of illustrating the same point. That's what it seems to me Paul's doing here. Maybe you love the military imagery. Maybe you don't love the military imagery. It's an illustration, not a mandate. Maybe the athlete image uh, sort of resonates with you, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you can relate to the farming scene. Maybe you can't. The point's not that Paul is telling Timothy or us that we have to be a soldier or an athlete or a farmer, and certainly not all three. Rather, there's an underlying reality, a main point that Paul is communicating that these three illustrations all point to. So what's the main point? Well, here's where I think we actually have to to work a little bit to exposit one of the illustrations to really understand them all and how they convey this underlying main point. So look what Paul says here about the athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So first we've got to note that the the crowned idea idea has to do with how the ancient Greeks or Romans awarded the winners of some athletic competition by giving them a crown of leaves or or flowers. And of course, what's the goal of athletic competition? It's to win, right? We're Americans. My, My family is moderately athletic. My wife and I both did sports growing up or in high school and what have you, and, 
and our kids are playing sports, some, uh, some for their schools, go Falcons. You might remember the, uh, the mantra by Vince Lombardi, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Uh, my family certainly isn't that extreme. But somehow in this past volleyball season, this kind of saying emerged in our family, uh, it's not about winning, it's about having fun, but winning is fun. Because <laughs> I don't think Paul's really making a big point about winning here, he's just making that as a kind of simple kind of illustration with the obvious observation that an athlete competes to win. You play the game to get the prize, and whether the prize is a, a crown or a medal or a trophy or simply crosstown bragging rights. But this next phrase in what Paul's uh, saying here is, is a bit more confusing, but I think it's really what drives home the main point that Paul's making. So what we have here in our pew Bibles and almost all other major translations says that an athlete doesn't win unless he competes according to the rules. The tricky thing here is that when we hear this, I think we're likely to think play according to the rules means don't cheat or don't play dirty or something like that. So there's something to that, but, but really the terminology here refers to something much more expansive, uh, including how one trains, how one prepares, how one practices, how one gets ready for the competition. So think of this less like following the rules of how to play the game and more like following the guidance of how to be a successful competitor. And being a, a, a winning volleyball player doesn't involve just not touching the net when you follow through on a spike. It involves hours and hours of repeated practice of your run-up and your jump and your arm movements and your hand position. Those are the rules, that the guidance, that I think Paul is more focused on. And in fact, this phraseology here, compete according to the rules, later takes on a technical meaning in, in the, in the Greco-Roman world uh, to mean what a professional as opposed to an amateur athlete does. That is, if, if you're really going to go for it, if you're really going to go for being a winner, then an athlete needs to follow the guidance or the training regimen of a professional athlete, not just a dabbler or an amateur. And I think we see this sometimes in, in, in modern sport. You know, here we are in fall, it's college football season, there's probably some college juniors and seniors who are playing right now who are going to graduate early or even drop out after the end of the season to dedicate themselves full time to training for pro football or the, the draft or what have you. And we can see this dynamic not just in sports, but uh, in other areas too, like art or music or film. I had a friend back in Los Angeles a long time ago who, who wanted to be an actress. And, she dabbled a bit, she got some small parts and commercials and the like, but she was living way out in the suburbs, a good hour or so from Hollywood, the center of the biz, and she was working full time as a teacher. But at one point, she said, she's just gotta go for it. So she quit her job, moved to LA, and started working full time as an actor, trying to get gigs, trying to work on the craft, networking, trying to make it as a professional actor, not just one who dabbles. Or maybe this plays out in professional music. If you're gonna make a living as a concert pianist, you're gonna to have to put in like eight hours a day of practice. It has to become your full-time job if you're going to play according to the rules as a professional musician. Paul's saying here that athletes who are really in it to win it have to dedicate themselves full-time as professionals in order to do so. Now this then I think helps us to understand the other two illustrations as well. So in, in verse four, the soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits because he's a professional soldier without the distractions of owning a business or other things. So too with the hardworking farmer in verse six, this is a professional farmer who's making his living as a farmer, reaping the rewards of full-time dedication to his crops. So I think then the main point these illustrations all point to 
is that to really reach the goal, to really pursue the end in, in the right way, you have to be all in, like a professional, not just dabbling as an amateur. So what I think Paul's saying here to Timothy is that Christianity, it's not just a hobby. This isn't intramural or, or rec league sports. This is the big leagues. Christianity isn't a part-time militia. It's professional military service. Christianity isn't a hobby garden. Christianity is full-on sunrise to sunset, if you don't grow it, you aren't eating, kind of farming. What we've received, what Timothy has received from those who'd come before us, is not a hobby. We've received the gospel. The good news requires us to be dedicated to nurturing and developing it in ourselves and in others at a, at a professional level. And what's this going to take? What does it take to compete according to the rules as a professional? I think, quite frankly, and Paul doesn't sugarcoat it, it's going to take suffering. You know what Paul says in verse 9, and, and like he mentioned in the previous chapter, Paul is suffering in the moment of his writing, literally suffering, suffering in chains because he had dedicated himself to the cause of Christ. And so in order to pull this off, to the shift from amateur to professional, one has to invite suffering Again, think about these illustrations, and I think that we can see that this makes sense. Think about all those Gatorade and Under Armour commercials of athletes running up the stairs in the stadium or getting up before dawn to do sprints. Or think of those eight hours a day at the piano, or think of the risk of quitting your job to make it in Hollywood. These are steps that require some measure of suffering as a natural consequence of the kind of dedication required to reach that professional level. And Christianity is no different. Receiving and nurturing the gospel is no different. It takes sacrifice and, and suffering to do it well. Some of that suffering might be like the kind that comes with practice and training. Some of it, the suffering might come like it did for Paul in terms of the suffering, the consequences for living justly in an unjust world. The latter is a sermon for another day, but I want to close today by thinking about that former suffering, the suffering of practice, training, and dedication. This fall during our catechesis adult education time, we've been thinking together about prayer book spirituality. One of the components of our prayer book is, in addition to our Sunday liturgies and liturgies for other sacraments, one component is the daily prayer services that we Anglicans call the daily office. The daily prayer services of morning and evening prayer with their cycles of scripture reading and prayers were an attempt in the 16th century by Thomas Cramner to merge monastic practices of praying seven times a day into two that all Christians could participate in. And I think in a sense, Cramner was taking what the professional Christians, the monks, did in the monastery and saying, we're all professional Christians. And so we all need the training as professionals. But rather than seeing the Christian profession as only monasticism, they are equally valid vocations to be professional Christians as teachers and students and plumbers and roofers and doctors and lawyers and homemakers and children. And as we all are professional Christians, as we all have our other professions. And it's pretty hard to stop your work seven times a day to pray and read scripture, especially if you're already a soldier, athlete, or farmer. But Cranmer thought that perhaps twice per day was not too much for a non-monastic professional Christian. If we Christians are training to be all in, to be professionals, not just amateurs, these times of reset and of training help to push our professionalism into all the other areas of our lives as well. And honestly, even two times per day can entail a bit of suffering. 
In order to do this, I have to tell myself no. Tell myself no quite a bit. No to my phone, no to Netflix, no to email, no to college football. No to all these other things, even good things at times. And that involves embracing a bit of suffering, the suffering of practice, training, and dedication. But finally, I think we must end where Paul begins this chapter, which is the grace that's in Christ Jesus. At any point in Christianity, when we start, uh, start to talk about our own efforts in practicing our faith, we're liable to think that it's only our efforts that matters. But Paul starts this whole discussion of calling us to effort, even effort with suffering, by means of a reminder of the grace that we've received from God in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So rather than our effort alone, God comes with us. God empowers us. God offers us grace as a supernatural empowerment to strive for professional grain and to endure the suffering that comes with it which I think takes us right back to the daily office. When we pray, when we read scripture, we're actually putting forth effort to quiet ourselves down to receive the grace that God wants to offer to us. And this is the grace that helps us to embrace this effort, embrace the suffering that comes with answering the call to be all in as recipients and nurturers of the good news about Jesus Christ. Amen.